You know, with the exception of Miss Price here, there isn't a decent human being amongst you. Not one. Do you know what makes a human being decent? Fear. And therein lies the problem. None of you has anything left to fear anymore. sociopath <laughs> gets thrown around a lot by the media but it really applies to my next guest please welcome Jason some body bags. My boy sure wants us to believe his story. Well, we picked the right day to pull this shit. I mean, happy Friday the 13th. Wait a minute. You admit the sign did say Camp Forest Green with an arrow pointing this way. I admit nothing without talking to my lawyer. I told you we should have left a trail of breadcrumbs. Don't start. Ah, so much for the head counselors ever getting back to the camp on their own. I say we stop the car, get out, and start screaming for help. I was just kidding, Elizabeth. Darren, we better turn around. Why? Because I've seen enough horror movies to know any weirdo wearing a mask is never friendly. You in show business, kid? You sure know how to make an entrance. Look, you gotta do something. Jason's alive. He killed my friend, and now he's coming for me. You gotta cool out, boy. You already almost got your head blown off. Will you listen, damn it? Don't piss me off, Junior. I will repaint this office with your brains. tried to get my son to read the comments while it was happening live but you know he's like 12 <laughs> so so it's, it's like asking a 12 year old to do something <laughs> so it, it doesn't really get done to the best quality no impossible I'm, I'm glad he did this this live stream with me he's he's been so excited it's like live stream day he's like yay <laughs> the thing i noticed too is like every second just feels like a microsecond 10 minutes of dead air if you just pause for how oh long. yeah yeah. You're just like, oh my God, say something, do something. Fuck, they're watching. You don't realize how much dead space there is until you are doing it. And then it's... Yeah, like somebody farted or something. Jesus Christ. Right. Are you a fan of slashers? Do you, do you like uh, just the guy with a knife coming at teenagers? Yeah, I've always really liked slashers. And I think when I saw it, Friday was like the pure slasher movie kind of distilled down into what you expect a slasher to be. 
And for all of its warts, I think it's more consistent than basically any other horror franchise there is. It's funny. A lot of people would argue that it's not the most consistent at all. <laughs> not in terms of continuity. Its continuity is, by about the third, fourth movie, is completely fucked. Agreed. But take it sort of like this. First Halloween, masterpiece. First Nightmare, game changer. Landmark, yeah. First Hellraiser, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they're all amazing. The first Friday is kind of the middle of the road of that franchise. What's the sequels? And the well, sequels for Halloween fall off a cliff. They do. They do. They, they try to incorporate some kind of demon possession, uh, Satanism, you know, to, to try to explain the reason why he's so unstoppable. But I think the mystery in that was the, the gimmick. They're both very lopsided franchises for sure because i agree with him i think the first two fridays are kind of slow and and kind of creep along compared to the meat and potatoes of it but then look at something like hellraiser Mm -hmm. and outside of the first two movies i would argue that hellraiser is basically unwatchable after that oh come on hell on earth is so good it is one of the most quintessential 90s horror movies and you cannot disagree with that. It's got, you know, all the music and the, the, the faux goth, you know, and so it's a practical effects, you know, but still has that kind of punk spirit that I guess that grunge rock kind of infused into society. It has that. I'm just going to do my little intro, guys. Give me a second. We can kick this thing off. Here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Spitting the Real Shit. Uh, the only weekly movie podcast made exclusively by, for, and about the online Facebook group, The Real Shit. And you are catching us on a very special day, because this is our 53rd episode ever. And this week, we keep the scares going with our October series of Slasher Icon episodes and take a trip to Forest Green County, formerly Crystal Lake, as we break down the 1986 horror sequel, Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives along with chatting about the franchise on the whole and a Jason-themed round of first and favorite, as well as industry news, and checking in on the calendar of horror. My name is Charlie Thompson, founder, administrator, and bracket master of The Real Shit, and joining me, as always, is my co-host and fellow administrator, the midnight movie maniac himself, Rylan Johnson. What's going on, man? Real, 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 shit, 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 shit. Real, 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 shit, shit, shit. <laughs> I don't know if that came out good on a, on a mic, but... Jason's coming for us, boys. I think I'd probably be the first to die. Second favorite slasher next to Freddy. So I'm stoked. Let's go. And for the second time here on Spitting the Real Shit, we have a longtime member and tried and true Friday fanatic, Mr. Matthew Smith. I hope all is well, sir. How have you been, man? I'm doing good. I'm super psyched about this. Jason is the man. And I want you guys to remember, Jason (laughs) has killed more people on screen than death itself. (laughs) He is the king, for sure. Matt, you made the history books on Spitting the Real Shit. You are our fifth return guest. So, hey, you're in the top five, man. Congratulations. We just really appreciate all your contributions to the real shit. Uh, Like Rylan had said before, you did a great exploration on this franchise we're going to talk about tonight with your reviews and filled with fun facts and just your opinions on the films. Man, we're so glad to have you back. Glad to be back. You know, it's weird listening to that episode I did with you guys for Fist. It's just weird hearing yourself. (laughs) <laughs> and it feels like you go like, man, was that good? Again, five, four, three. That's tomorrow. And that is it for us today. And we will leave you with a, uh, I can't do it. Okay. We'll do it live. Okay. We'll, no. we'll do it live. Fuck it.
my first few episodes, I was giving Rylan like updates, like every like time I made an update. I was like, "How does this sound?" I feel like we're pros now, Charlie. This is our fifty third episode, man. Like, so I focused on some stuff to help me sound a little bit better. But yeah, it's a little nerve wracking to hear yourself. You can definitely see our progression if you listen to our first episode versus this one. Production value and and just the way we talk is is better. I would hope so. I just assumed you guys were professionals. Thanks, man. That's high praise, sir. That's high praise. <laughs> We've just been getting in the groove, man. And, and that's what's so cool is you, you're kind of on the other side of it now. Over 50 episodes in on this idea. It's pretty freaking dope. It's also cool that I was on episode 35 and now I'm on episode 53. Ooh. <laughs> fun facts. Fun I facts. Yeah. You inverted it, guys. <laughs> you did. And I saw that on the last Skype call is back in April. Man, time is flying. It's been six months, man. We wanted to have you on this Friday the 13th themed episode coming out next week is a Friday the 13th fan fiction film. I'm assuming it's just going to go straight to streaming. But it's called 13 Fanboy. Basically, a kid who had a rough go of it in his childhood, who had nothing to cling to but a series of horror films, specifically Friday and Halloween, I believe. And he just used that knowledge plus his anger and rage of his past, and it turned him into this just machete-wielding killer, just like Jason. When I was a kid... My dad used to lock me in the basement when I was bad. The only thing I had to keep me company was a stack of VHS tapes. Friday the 13th and Halloween. The entire sagas. You all became my family. So I wrote and I wrote. But you never wrote. It's a fun little exploration of the fandom, using that canon to tell other stories that don't necessarily have to be about Jason. And I think it's just such a cool little way to get more Friday content. Not as familiar with this one. I haven't been following it as closely as some others, but you look at the people that they got to to come back and do stuff for this, it's stacked top to bottom. You know, just from the trailer, it looks like the production values are pretty high. You gotta love the passion these people have to keep this thing alive when the people that have the legal right to do so don't seem all that interested in doing it. It's a big notice that it's just not moving. Uh, there was even talk of a sequel to the reboot, and still nothing happened. Nothing. I just think it's such a fan service. I mean, that movie is made and put out there for the people that go to those horror cons and really love all those actresses. I'm not familiar with all of them, but you can tell that a lot of those people are the one-off kills from previous 13 movies, and that's awesome. I think that's great. The only Friday fan film I've actually watched is a movie called Never Hike Alone. Hey guys, it's day 12 and a beautiful one at that. So today's mission, find the lake. This train's looking a little treacherous, but I just have to make my way. Nothing's stopping me. All right, I'll check in with you guys later. Kyle, out. It was recommended to me at the time that it was released. The idea of a Jason fan fiction film was just so far out there. And then, of course, you assume it's just going to be just low budget, super grainy, poor production value. But this one, they really use the natural elements in their favor, which that's the Friday gimmick, really. Using nature to not have to make set pieces, <laughs> you know, and keep the budget small. That back to basics feel. And the sequel one for it, too, Never Hike in the Snow, is some of the same things. It expands on it a bit more. Both work really well at kind of condensing down. This stuff gets so complicated and mm -hmm. so crazy. 
And sometimes you got to go back to where it started. Simple, effective atmosphere. Sometimes that's all you need. We have rigged this entire valley of death with hidden cameras. And I will be shooting as well from unseen vantage points so that every glorious moment is captured on film. <laughs> and believe me, gentlemen, it will be glorious. Besides the fan fiction film, my man Nasty Nate will love this. Uh, we just got our first look at some footage of the new Resident Evil. It's coming out on Netflix. Uh, Resident Evil, welcome to Raccoon City. What are you doing out hitchhiking on a night like this, anyway? Used to live here, you said. Raccoon City. Better you than me. Watch out! town's been poisoned. If we don't contain this, it could threaten the whole world. Shall we go? Come on. What the f What were Umbrella doing here? They were experimenting on him. This is my life's work. I'm not giving it to anybody. Vickers, this is Chief Irons. Pick up your damn radio! Umbrella is gonna destroy this place. I really want to get out of this town. I, I thought of Nasty Nate immediately because when he was on our show last October, we did a whole Resident Evil uh, rundown. And this is what me and him kind of said they should do, which was... Bring it back to the original video game where they're in the mansion and it's a lot more of a haunted house kind of feel that looks like they've made it. I, I think it looks way better than whatever I was forced to watch because Nate made me do it. <laughs> I'm still mad at Nate for that. Yeah, you know, we got to get those shit ones in every now and then. But this one, I was reading the YouTube comments on the trailer that I watched, and it was just all the fanboys just like hating it, hating it, hating it. So I don't know what to expect, but it looks better than, than the last seven. I mean, would you hit play on that thing as soon as it came up on Netflix? Sure. Yeah, I grew up with the PlayStation and the original, and that Resident Evil game was terrifying. Couldn't play that game at night. It was so scary. If it's an ode to that video game, yeah, I'd check it out. I probably would have said I would avoid it at all costs, but a couple years ago, I saw the Doom try. And I was like, yo, this ain't bad. Of course, you have Sonic and all these other success stories that have come out in the last couple of years about video game adaptations. And so I'm a little bit more attuned to, to watching Resident Evil, even though I have zero idea what's going on outside of the movie narrative. Matthew, are you a Resident Evil fan at all? Or? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. I, I played Resident Evil 1 on the Saturn. <laughs> Introducing Sega Saturn. Aww. Hit it. Hit <laughs> it. 
Sega's next-generation gaming platform, revolutionary sports and arcade gameplay, all with amazing new 3D experiences never before possible on home game systems. Wow. That's dating us for sure. If you don't know what he's talking about, that's the Sega Saturn. Man, I jumped from Sega, I think, to PlayStation. That Sega Saturn was in the middle. My dad was like, no, I just bought you a Sega. (laughs) Don't feel bad. The console I had before the Saturn was the uh, Jaguar. So, you know, I know what pain feels like. Dude, you played the Jaguar? I played the Jaguar. I had a buddy of mine that had a Jaguar. Some of you believe your system is the most advanced in the universe. Let's review the numbers. Sega Genesis is 16 bits. 3DO is 32 bits. The Atari Jaguar is 64 bits. Which is more advanced? Clifford! Hmm? Jaguar! 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 I never even saw one of those, man. Like, you've heard of it, but you never saw it. And I remember the controller. They were really getting loosey-goosey on the look of these controllers, especially on the Jaguar. You get three action buttons, right? Keypad from a phone that you're never going to use for anything. (laughs) Yep. Resident Evil was... I really liked that. The first two games, man, they're like adrenaline rush games, at least at first. So what about the Mila Jovovich? Jov- Am I saying that right? Jovovich? Mila yeah. Jovovich, I think. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Nate, are you listening? Did you hear that shit? There was a YouTuber, uh, I think he's still around, uh, called Erod, and he did a review of, uh, I think, the second Resident Evil movie. And his character in the review kept calling her Mila Yo-Yo Bitch. So Mila Yo-Yo Bitch gets out of the hospital, but the zombies has taken over the city and shit. And she's all like, bring it on, bitches! (laughs) (laughs) First time I saw that, I pissed myself laughing. (laughs) I saw the first movie at the theater with one of my cousins. And our grandmother dropped us off for it, right? And also said, oh, it's okay, they can see the movie. I got back, and I'm looking over, and we're like, what the fuck just happened? Because they kept making them and making them and making yeah. them. I'm like, good lord. They are they... huge in Asia. I was going to say, yeah. And they're not dubbed when they go over there either. The subtitles, and sometimes not even those, because it's like the Fast and the Furious movies. You don't need to know what they're saying to enjoy the movie. I've never really liked them. I thought they strayed just way too much. I didn't like that Amila Jovovich, her character just is perfect at everything and has, you know, superpowers and clones. And when they started to add the Resident Evil characters from the games in, they're all like chumps. <laughs> I kind of wanted to keep it in the horror realm as far as our trailer drops this week. But I also wanted to give an update on the calendar of horror. It's still going strong. We are recording on the 11th of October. So uh, tonight's entry is The Killing of a Sacred Deer. I wanted to say one more thing. I'm really sorry about Bob. It's nothing serious. No, it is. They will all get sick and die. Bob will die. Kim will die. Your wife will die. Understand? No, I don't. But we've had some great movies come our way in the last 10 days. Three live streams over those last 10 days as well. Fellas, have you been getting any of these movies in? You know which ones I've caught. Street Trash is at the top of my list. (laughs) (laughs) I had no clue what it was. And then I looked into it and I was like, oh my God. Like, was it on Shutter only or is it rental only, right? It's not even available for rental except for like AMC Plus or Shutter. Man, I used to own a copy of the special edition, man. I hit some hard times and I, I sold my entire DVD collection. Oh, I know, I know. 
In hindsight, I was very sad. But I got $600 for my DVD collection, which I thought was pretty good for a bunch of used DVDs. But yeah, man, uh, Street Trash, it is an oddity of a film. You never defile me like that in front of the men! What men? You Jews have deserted, you scumbag! It's one of those where, back in the 70s, 80s, uh, it was really cheap to record in New York. But back then, you could film anywhere. You know, They wouldn't hassle you about permits or anything like that. You can't imagine how many guys filmed and just said, oh, yeah, we're just going to film at 2 a.m. Don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. In these back alleys that were just yeah. created by just the architecture of New York, the biggest takeaway that I had was just that New York aesthetic. That, that was the hugest character, in my opinion of this whole movie. Uh, you know, the downtrodden, I mean, it, back in the 70s, 80s, New York had plenty of that. And it was just commentary on that kind of life, plus giving you some great body horror gore. It's incredible. Tomorrow night, Creep is tomorrow night. Watch it. It threw me off at first because it's the guy from the show The League that I really liked. You know, I was one of those fantasy football players in the late aughts. So he's, you think of him as a comedic presence. Oh, hey, what are you doing up? What the hell are you doing in my house? Just making a little tea. For me? Nope. Ah. Oh. Did you vulture my au pair? Did I vulture your au pair? Absolutely not. I vultured baby Jeffrey's au pair. <sighs> Good night. He plays the perfect creep, and it's so different and well done. It's definitely like a found footage style. It really is. I mean, you know, it follows a journalist and just meets this creepy guy. And it, the ending's a good twist ending. It's just a great little psychological thriller that I enjoyed over the last, you know, five, ten years. I've seen uh, some of it. That movie is very unsettling. It's like the, you took a combination of, of horror and the most, like, uncomfortable situations you can be in. Awkward. Super Ugh. awkward. You're on the razor's edge of the whole movie, and that's that's kind of what it goes for. wouldn't work without that guy being just so good at that. Like you said, awkwardness. It's a thing. It's not easy to do, I think, and, and acting. Part, part of the writing as well, but just to create those super awkward moments, like you said. Are you, are you just trying to scare me? Or, okay, well, well, I'm terrified, okay? You won. Now, will you just please step aside and let me go? Stop. Stop it. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! Every red flag in the world is going off. Yeah, yeah. And the guy just keeps going. Now you're like, man, he's really pushing the limits here. Like, all right, if I was him, I would have pulled back a long time ago. The the guy you're talking about, the guy from the league, his name is Mark Duplass. Mark Duplass, when he does feature films, he really collaborates with his brother. We call those Duplass Brothers films. He's made a handful of them. In the indie scene, uh, Mark Duplass is very popular, uh, besides the league. So when I watched the league, I was like, hey, that's Mark Duplass. <laughs> Sorry, anytime I get a chance to talk about the Duplass brothers and put them on, I, I, I always want to do that. Also this week, kind of deviating from Stephen King Sunday, I did put Sleepwalkers on a Friday night just because I love that film. And I remember on the live stream for Gerald's game, Rylan, you had said that Sleepwalkers is your favorite. Isn't this the excitement you were talking about, Tanya? <laughs> <laughs> Right. We do understand each other, Tanya. <laughs> ah! 
it's so fun and goofy and ridiculous. And but at the same time, like I thought that guy was so cool, man. He had the fucking Camaro and he was getting the hot girl, but at the same time, it had this horror aspect to it. Yeah, I love that movie. Growing up as a kid, that's a crazy one, and that is definitely one of his entries where you're like. Oh, Stephen King used to have a horrible cocaine problem? Oh, <laughs> no way. How else do you think the movie Maximum Overdrive got made? That thing was made on celluloid and cocaine, sir. Should have put that <laughs> on the calendar. Oh, I know, I know, but I, I, I can't sit through that shit again. And what's so funny about that is that Stephen King decided himself to direct this film. Mm-hmm. Because in his words, he claimed that nobody did it right. And this is after Stanley Kubrick and Brian De Palma both submitted their tries. Wow. It's super balls. It's balls. Hey, but he, he got ACDC to do the soundtrack for him. So, I mean, can you really hate him? Fuck you, Stanley Kubrick. I got ACDC in my film. So that's what I'm trying to do with the calendar, guys, is kind of give not just straight up gore or straight up jump scares, just kind of give you a little bit of everything, like Jennifer's body, like Sleepwalkers. But rest assured, the last two weeks, I really crank up the terror. So if you think these first two weeks are kind of soft, that's kind of intentional. You you knocked it out of the park, man. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. I appreciate like it's, it. It's a daunting thing to pick out that many movies. Even on my own horror list, you know, we had some overlap with uh, Elvira. I was like, oh, man, someone else thinks that movie's amazing. It's incredible, dude. And she's incredible. She's a Groundlings performer. It just happened to be that she loved horror movies and heavy metal as well. Oh, uh, <laughs> Bloody Mary. No hard liquor, sir, past 8 o'clock. Do you want a virgin? Maybe, but uh, I'll have a couple of drinks first. But going on the next few live streams, guys, I got Whitney Blake Dean coming in on the 23rd. That's going to be a Saturday. We're going to be talking Hocus Pocus. But, Matt, you're going to be joining me in a couple weeks on the live stream for the screening of Jaws. Uh, Rylan's actually kind of chomping at the bit to get on this live stream. Just no pun intended. Just, uh, uh, I'm coming. I'm going to be in the waters at least, guys. I'm going to be chumming them waters. I can't wait to break it down on the live stream, man. We're in for a great next couple weeks of this calendar, guys. All that house cleaning is gone. Now it's straight Jason. We have a game to play. Matt, you want to play a game with us? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Hello. You don't know me, but I know you. I want to play a game. This week, we are bringing back the first and favorite game. First and favorite originated on the Real Shit feed. It's a great way to just kind of get in people's heads as far as how they first saw this thing, you know, and what their opinions of it were. And I'm so excited to know what you guys' first and favorites are. Matt, as our guest, I would love for you to divulge your first and your favorite. Okay. First film that I saw from this series? First movie you saw all the way through. Okay. That's your first. The first one I saw all the way through, and... This isn't going to sound good. <laughs> was part five. The mindless, murderous fury that was buried with Jason has been reborn. Pete. And suddenly, terror has become child's play. Friday the 13th, part five, a new beginning. Man, I love part five. 
it feels so sacrilegious for that to be the first one. Okay, so this is how this happened. When I was a kid, my mom let me see horror movies, right? But for some reason, Friday the 13th was not one of those things she wanted me seeing. So when I was in junior high and we got cable, which was a big deal because we never had it before, and we had HBO and we had Cinemax, and one of the first things that I saw at night was Friday the 13th 5. I was super excited to see it. And of course, you know, 5 gets a bad rap, I think more than it probably deserves. But it is a strange, strange entry in the series. Why these hillbillies here? This is the first time I'd seen a Friday movie in its entirety and seen it uncut, you know, not censored on TV. There's a lot of stuff in Friday 5 you can't show on TV. (laughs) And then, you know, there's the twist, and I'm like, what? His mask is blue. Also, it doesn't look like the mask on the cover of the VHS at all. No, no spoilers here, guys. This came out in 1985. <laughs> so I'm curious, what is your favorite Jason movie of all time? If you ask me today and you ask me six months from now, they may be different. Okay. But I think part six, Jason Lives, is my favorite. Tommy Jarvis is a very sick boy. Oh, how do you know, Dad? What'd you do, take his temperature? Better watch this smart-mouthing young lady. It vies and jockeys in position with uh, part four all the time because I go back and forth between those two. Right now, I would say six. Jason Lives is probably my favorite. You know, it was a big departure for the series, and it brought the series back after five. I mean, there were talks after five that they just wanted to end it. Five did okay financially, but they were used to having the critics take a crap on the movie. When fans started to do it, they got nervous. I've I've got nothing but love for number six, man. But same with Dream Warriors. I kind of put it near the bottom, man. Maybe just my love of the underdog, not really sure. But I remember my first Jason experience, and that was watching the TV cut on AMC of Friday 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. Friday the 13th, Part 8. Jason takes Manhattan. Now, New York has a new problem. As a kid, especially late 80s, early 90s, every kid knew who Jason and Freddy were. I mean, they were just kind of mythical characters if you've never seen the films. But you knew the names at the very least. You knew one had a claw hand and one had a hockey mask. And I remember I must have been 14, probably, and I had an afternoon free, and I saw that AMC was playing number eight, not knowing anything about the series or, you know, how movie franchises work. I just put it on, and I was so incredibly lost. I had no idea what the fuck was going on. All of it was just so incredibly gonzo to my 14-year-old brain. And it kind of turned me off. I didn't see the value in it. Didn't seem like anything worth watching, really. And so I kind of put it away. But then uh, when I was in my horror psycho years, I totally wanted to do a run of all 10 movies. And so I did from number one all the way through to the end. And I figured out that my favorite Jason movie is number five, A New Beginning. You know something? I really love it here. I hate it. You know, um, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, I never really chopped wood before, but it certainly looks like fun. Leave me alone! It's my favorite Jason movie of all time because it deviates so incredibly much from the usual formula. I tried to make it more of a whodunit rather than a straight-up slasher film, which I commend them 100%, and I think the kills are good. I think the ratio of adult themes plus violence in the film is greater than it had been ever before in the series, which is a huge piece of its notoriety going forward. I thought it was satisfying. 
I just love the premise of this, the father who takes revenge, his son who is killed by... spoilers. (laughs) Oh, I'm (laughs) sorry. You know what? I'm going to save that info for anybody who's never seen part five. But yeah, but number eight, I just could not do it. Even when I watched it again, I was like, man, what a terrible movie this is. It could have been so much better, like so much better. But Ryland... I'm curious. None of y'all throw in an honorable mention, so I'm going to do that first. It's going to be Freddy versus Jason, and I'll tell you why. Why won't you die? I've seen a couple of movies as kid-based. When Freddy versus Jason came out, it was kind of guys my age. They were like early 20s by then, or even older, but just huge horror fans of both franchises. Because Freddy's my boy, number one, and Jason is so close to number two. And it had been talked about for years. Everybody knows the story and how long it took. But the live experience to see it on opening night at like, I think I went to like Arlington, some Arlington Mall, huge mall. It was packed. I think it was either my freshman year of college or, or senior year of high school. I came back in town and watched it with one of my good buddies. And just the whole experience of it was great. And it's a good movie. It's fun. It doesn't take itself seriously too much. And Matthew, I know you're a Jason boy, but Freddie, you know, he stands up there and, and puts up a good fight. Did you guys ever see that live or in the theaters or did you just catch it at home? On the Saturday of that, that opening weekend, that was insane inside that place. What do you anticipate will be your most difficult challenge in fighting Jason? <laughs> Waiting to see if this goalie here can find a ring. (laughs) Just ticks it up so much, right? That's why the theater is such a coveted place for me because I've seen Beer Fest at Movie Tavern when it came out with a bunch of, you know, college guys drinking those big steins. And that was a great experience. You know, I've seen these live weekend opening movies. They have that extra allure and that just extra movie magic involved when you're watching it with a bunch of true fans. Avengers Endgame is probably the most recent one where you can see video of people freaking out in the theater. So what is your first? I was like seven. I was so early in the game. I mean, I'd seen Freddy by then and I knew of the slashers and I'm just enamored by it because I had an older cousin that, you know, could at least obtain these VHSs and we could watch them in his room secretly at the end of the night when our parents went to bed because I'd only see him during the summers. He showed me part eight, Jason Takes Manhattan. It was probably 90 or 91, so it was still a pretty fresh movie. It came out in 89. Awesome poster, by the way. Isn't that a good poster? The classic where he's over the skyline. But anyways, it's Kane Hodder's second installment. I think Kane Hodder really comes into his own in this one. I mean, Julius, the the jock, his uppercut decapitation is probably my favorite. (laughs) But I call Jason on a boat because eh, when my cousin tried to explain it to me, I expected him to be like in Times Square in New York City, just hacking people up and being in New York City the whole time. That's not the case. Hey, listen, no hard feelings, man, okay? What do you say we track down those babes later? The whole entire first half of the movie, he's on a boat. Just doesn't make sense, but that's my first. Matt, do you know how much time they spent actually in New York for that shoot? They shot two days in New York. That Times Square scene is pretty much it trailers back then that's how they got people hooked was that one shot of you know him kicking over a boom box and the punk kids uh start talking shit you like that meat slime bag yo man it's cool it's cool man it's cool you know when i saw it as a kid i was like expecting that i don't know i think it already had it in my head that jason was just in new york city the whole time well i mean the name is called jason takes manhattan i mean they're kind of reeling you in it's it's a real bait and switch type of situation this was not the street trash era at all i think part eight is a movie that gets a lot of hate and it gets it justly (laughs) for some reason 
I always come back to it for as dumb as it is and for as bait and switchy that it is. It just has this charm to it. It's so 80s. That opening song from Metropolis, Darkest Side of the Night, is just... I have to go back and listen to it. Is it great? No. It has probably the worst ending the entire series. The final girl is terrible. Yes. It doesn't make a lick of sense. Yes. It's just charming for some reason. I, I can't really explain it. The uh, the sauna rock kill. About as unique as you can get, Jason. I mean, good Lord. There was a producer sitting in his sauna one day going, man, that probably hurt if Jason jammed that into my chest. That character was supposed to get darts stuck in his eye, but the MPAA said, no, you can't do that. I think the Sun Rock's way worse. <laughs> Kelly Who is in that movie. That's her first movie. Takes his mask off and he looks like a melted cookie monster. You know, you listen to stuff with the director and writer Rob Head and like he clearly wanted to do a big movie and Paramount went, yeah, yeah. And then about a couple of days into shooting to like, yeah, we can't afford any of this crap. It's Jason takes a boat and... I really do think that if you'd have called that movie, you know, Friday the 13th, part eight, Cruise of Terror. Yeah. <laughs> and then at the end, it's like, holy shit, he ends up in New York at the end. Yeah. People would have been like, oh, that's amazing. But you sold it as he goes to New York. And then everybody went, why the fuck isn't he in New York? <laughs> and then why is he in Vancouver for most of what he's supposed to be in New York? I defend that movie because I just think it gets way too much hate. And I think the people trying to make it were trying to do better. And like a lot of filmmakers, it just didn't happen. Last week, I had mentioned Freddy Five, The Dream Child. And I had made a note that it's one of the most Freddy, Freddy films. Like, they really go into the lore. They really experiment with the dream sequences. And I think that's, that's Eight's deal as well, is that they really double down on Jason. They really just want to get as creative as they can with this character. The filmmakers involved, the people who've been there for a while, they really know how to make a Jason film. Jason Takes Manhattan is one of the most Jason-y Jason movies. But the same with Dream Child. It ranks very low on my list. I'm, I'm aware of it, and I respect it, but it doesn't give it that many points. I will never argue that it is a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> this is my introduction to Jason, but I loved it. And we watched back-to-back movies that day. And my second to watch was my favorite, which is part six, which is a lot of people's favorite. Tommy Jarvis is a very sick boy. Oh, how do you know, Dad? What'd you do, take his temperature? Better watch this smart-mouthing young lady. I mean, I'm not going to talk much about it because we're about to just dive into it, but I remember how much better I thought it was than Manhattan almost instantly when I watched it. I'd already watched two Jason movies, and in my group of friends, I was already cool. I couldn't wait to tell people. Oh, yeah, and that's that part that, like, I can't wait to tell people that I've seen this thing. You're seven. You're not allowed to see that shit. So, you, of course, you're not going to go around telling everybody, but you're going to go tell your best buddies, like, in secret, like, dude, I watched two Jason movies this summer. I mean, you know my Beverly Hills Cop 2 story. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know how excited I can get over a movie. So, I think that is the overall fan favorite, Matthew. It's got to be. I think it is. If it's not, it's like one or two. I think in recent years, people have pulled back a little bit on it. Some people say it's too generic, but... Saying a Friday the 13th is generic is like saying that, you know, it's going to rain someday. Thank you. You are entirely welcome. And now, let us all go to my house for a little sponge cake and a little wine. And... 
earn shit. To the lumberyard! Yeah. Kind of watched them in, in reverse order. Like, let's say from Manhattan back. I had to wait until I was a little more mature to where I could even watch three, two, and one because they just weren't getting my attention. I, I tried to watch them and they weren't easy to find or whatever at the time. And then by the time I'd watched them, I, I was just so much more into the, the the fun, full octane Jason movies that had hit like, you know, six, seven, eight. You bring up a really good point. I mean, a lot of us, um, myself as well, we saw these movies scattershot completely yep, yep. out of order. I was born in 83. You know, first one's in 80. Please help me get out of it's here. just this place and the storm. That's why you're upset. No, no, no. They're all dead. They're there was so much stuff coming out. Blockbuster was around. When you're a kid, unless you have a father, you know, or somebody that shows you some of these older films that are 5, 10, 15 years old, what, why do you have any interest in those, you know, unless it's a genre you're just addicted to? Well, I mean, we're already starting to talk about it, guys. Y'all want to just go ahead and get into this thing? Do it. Oh, yeah. Let's do it, guys. Let's take a trip to Crystal Lake and talk about Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives. <laughs> They thought the nightmare was dead and buried. They were wrong. Jason lives. Happy Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th, part six. Jason lives. Rated R. Starts Friday, August 1st at a theater near you. Uh, besides the actual movie itself, I would love to talk about just some of some of the French. Sorry, I've had about three beers, guys. <laughs> I, I, I got the beer burps. I got forty p. Oh hell yeah! Just cracking a cold one with the boys. You know what I mean? <laughs> what are you guys up to? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to just talk about the franchise on the whole. Like so many fun facts that you can throw out about this franchise. Like one of my favorites. Uh, I'm, I'm sure Matt has a couple. Before the first Friday the Thirteenth. Sean Cunningham was trying to, you know, secure funds for the movie. And he had an investor lined up, but he wasn't sure if he himself wanted to make this movie. And so the investor was willing to invest the money. He was just waiting on Cunningham's word. Cunningham tells a story about how he couldn't sleep that night. He just could not get a wink. He was just, it was on his mind the entire time. And he finally, at like 4.30 in the morning, he called the investor and he said, you know what, let's make this movie. And then the investor on the phone said, I'm so glad you called me. I'm literally in the car right now. I was going to take this movie money and I was going to invest it into a strip mall. So the first Jason funds could have gone to a strip mall, but it didn't because Sean Cunningham decided to make the movie. It's fun facts like that that help make this franchise so dense, man. The first person that he tried to get investment from before that told him that he would basically bankroll the whole thing and he goes but i own everything he oh. said no i'm not i'm not going to give up the rights to the movie you made a great observation about friday the 13th it was kind of like a mock-up of a slasher movie it's like what they thought audiences wanted to see as opposed to like an artist's vision of a film frank mancuso jr sean cunningham they'll tell you right away the first friday the 13th was a money-making endeavor there was yeah. no real sense of artistry about it. It was mechanical. And you got to remember, Sean Cunningham, and he was doing what they would call the white coat films. You guys familiar with those? Uh, I don't know the term, no. 
White Coat film was basically a way to get around obscenity laws. You gotta keep it up to the end of the song. How much longer? It's only 10 more minutes. And it would basically be a porno where this guy in a lab coat, hence White Coat, he would come out and he would say something like, uh, this is how intercourse is done between men mm. and women. And then the movie would play and it would get around obscenity law. <laughs> He definitely wanted to just make money. He was trying to fund a different project, and Friday was just a way to do that. And no one could have known that from 1980 to 1989, we'd have eight of these things. Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th. Part 2. Friday the 13th. Part 3. In 3D. Friday the 13th. The final chapter. Friday the 13th, part 5, a new beginning. Friday the 13th, part 6, Jason lives. Friday the 13th, part 7, the new blood. Opening Friday, May 13th, the deadliest day of the year. Friday the 13th, part 8, Jason takes Manhattan. Now, New York has a new problem. I, I had mentioned it in the Freddy episode, Charlie, about the Never Sleep Again documentary. I think that was obviously its own doc. I've seen a Jason documentary. I just can't remember what it was called, but I, I could have swore it was like an AMC thing. Okay, so so Matt, before you answer, because I, I, I know you probably know the answer to this. <laughs> Is it Camp Crystal Lake or something? I've seen, I've, I've... Uh, yes, uh, around the time of the reboot's release, in order, in order to promote the movie, they made like a little 90-minute retrospective of the entire franchise and it's super fast paced uh, it's called uh, his name is jason that's right they have interviews with the old actors and and sean and victor and the, all the major players in the franchise but it was he was super fast paced and, and it, they gave every little bit just very little time his name is jason is like the fast poor man's documentary it's not bad but they are going a mile a minute there's another documentary it's from the same people that did never sleep again and it's called Crystal Lake Memories. Yeah, yeah, that's the one I really liked. It was based on a book, Crystal Lake Memories. Yes. Um, which is the giant coffee table book. Um, which I still don't have, and I want so badly. Ryland, if you ever wanted to get me a Christmas gift. <laughs> to me, he's the most fearsome, awesome, indestructible, mysterious figure in movie history. The fans so adore this character. They like Jason more than they like their survivors. The best horror movies find a way to tap into something that's truly human. We don't know why, but it's something in us that likes to be scared. Still to this day, it was the most terrifying thing I've ever shot. But from what I understand, it's very hard to find. Is that correct? If you don't mind having a digital version, I mean, of course, it's easily available that way, but I don't know if it's still in print. I have a first print. Oh my God, that's amazing. I couldn't get a signed print. I was just a college student then. You know, I don't think the reboot was actually out when it first came out. But yeah, it's not the easiest thing to find anymore. And it's also a pain to ship because it's enormous. Oh, it's a huge book. It's essentially meant to you know, be a, a display piece. One on Amazon for 36 bucks. It's a hardcover. Oh, That's my God. Way. Buy that. I, I, Christmas time, man. Come on. I remember me and the wife went to Barnes & Noble because we had a wait at a restaurant and it was next door. And it just happened to come out, I guess, that week. And so I was able to take some time and, and thumb through this book. 
at Barnes and Noble, and I fell in love with it. And I was the same as you, Matt. I had no fucking money. I had it in my hands at one point. I always wanted it so bad. They got everybody. They even got interviews with Kevin Bacon about his experiences and stuff like that. Famously, Kevin Bacon does not talk about this movie. Same thing with Steve Miner. Steve Miner took forever before he would really talk about the. And, and he's the only guy to ever direct more than one wouldn't talk about it. And it feels weird that he won't talk about it, but he did Hostel 3. <laughs> <laughs> and he'll talk about that shit forever. Yeah. You did the Day of the Dead remake with Ving Rhames, man. You, you can't be <laughs> feeling too good to talk about Friday 1 and 2. However, I will say, he directed House. Ryan, when you fuck with House? In 1980. They terrified the world with Friday the 13th. Now, Sean Cunningham and Steve Miner have found a new home for horror. House. It's waiting for you. No! House. Man, I've seen the original. I've not seen the second one. I remember when I was a kid, the VHS cover for House just always intrigued me, the little dead hand. It's one of the coolest movie covers of all time. My pick is always Shocker. That's always the movie cover that I always was, it, it scared the shit out of me. I've still never seen that movie to this day. I know it's dog shit. No, man, that's an underrated Wes Craven film, man. I knew it was like Nightmare Fallout. It was like, you like Nightmare on Elm Street? Well, Wes Craven did this one, too. So it's good, huh? So it's commendable, at least. It's not his best, I mean, but it is, you know, even his not best is good, in my opinion. If nothing else, it is not anything like what you think it is. Bizarre movie at times. <laughs> Oh, they marketed it as like a, another nightmare, but it had the same problem that like Deadly Friend had. The studio wanted it to be Nightmare on Elm Street, and Wes Craven did not. Two minds of, a, of, of the same thing, yeah. Last murderer, Horace Pinker, was put to death. Now, he's really mad. No, uh, uh, we had mentioned this, actually. Uh, it didn't make the cut on last week's episode, but I bought this Friday the 13th snow globe. I want to say about 10 years back. And I still display it to this day. I met my future wife in 2006. We started dating then. And we moved in in 2007. And one of the first things we did when, after we moved in was we decided to, to go to a horror convention. Like, I loved horror. She knew that. And she knew this uh, Texas Frightmare was happening. We made plans and we set aside a few days and, and we went. And, of course, if you've ever gone to a horror convention or any fan expo of any kind, everything is twice as expensive as you budgeted for. Oh, yeah. And that's exactly what happened with me. Romero was in the building. I believe all the Devil's Rejects were in the building. I wanted all those autographs. By the time I found this snow globe, it was already past the point in my wife's head. We can't spend any more money. Like, zero dollars can be spent. And I was like, honey... And she was so upset that I got it because it was like $55. Oh my God. <laughs> I know. I couldn't help myself. There's actual snow inside that thing. <laughs> I assured her back 10 years ago if we bought this, I would make sure it would get its money's worth. And so every year I make sure and make it the centerpiece of all of our Halloween decorations. Man, I wish I still had that kind of wherewithal to, to spend money on that kind of stuff. <laughs> I just can't do it anymore. So do you collect like Friday the 13th type stuff like that? Or are you just a movie fan? I know you got the box set. I've got a little bit. Probably the coolest thing I have, this is going to be weird, but yeah, I went to, you know, anime convention and I found a guy that was you know selling figures, but he had a first run, first print of the Movie Maniacs series. And he had right. one of the Jason Voorhees ones, that was the original bloody variant before Ooh. they had to take them off shelves because parents got pissy about 
you know, these blood-soaked figures. Um, yeah, those are sick. I've seen those. Those are awesome. I'm definitely a collector. I've got all sorts of crap. I've got I've got a good part six NECA where he's you know chained up underwater. I've got that whole diorama kind of thing. It's, oh, dude, yeah. so jealous. Oh, the NECA figures are so nice. I just love that one because it's you know it's him chained underwater and it and it he's kind of elevated. He's got his Rambo knife and his machete, and you can take his mask off and he looks like the zombie Jason. It's pretty cool. You know, Friday stuff is always kind of like horribly expensive. The Friday the Thirteenth franchise knows their value. I wonder if that's because, you know, it's been it's been so long since we had a movie and this series makes more money almost on merchandise now and doesn't anything else. Yeah, it's like Ramon's T-shirts. Everyone's just dying for Jason. And now his latest stab at terror has been slashed to just 1995. Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood. Plus, customers can scream again and again with the entire Friday the 13th Never Say Die collection. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like like they like the idea of it more than they actually like it. But like you said earlier, he wasn't in the business of trying to just make a movie. He was he was in the business of making money. And the people he chose to help make this movie, like Steve Miner, like Victor Miller to write the script, you can't have this franchise without those basic beginning blocks, you know, uh, to help to help build the character. But in in the movie we're going to talk about, the original character is strayed so far from what it was in the first film. And I'd love to just kind of take a little trip down that story. So like we said, independent film, you know, it was a bunch of guys looking to make a movie and they did it. And luckily Paramount Pictures, they picked it up, distributed it. And from the jump, the movie was a success. I mean, of course, the original story is so far removed from Jason Lives, where the original story is the mother is the killer and, and Jason is the, the innocent victim from years before. But again, like with everything in the Jason series, they're just in a vacuum, basically. And so when they were making the movie, they wanted to have this last shot that would literally just scare people, not knowing how important that shot was to the next 10 years of his life. shot was basically the final girl in the first movie she thinks she's in the clear and all of a sudden this teenage boy comes out of the water covered in moss and it's obviously jason Voorhees from the description of his mother and he pulls her down to the water and that's the end of the movie just to get one last jump scare for the audience seen that scene in carrie where the hand came out of the grave and he wanted to have the same impact and so with that one shot from the first film they created a decade's worth of entertainment. It, it's crazy. It's crazy. So, and number two is, was directed by Steve Miner. And then also number three as well. A wronged kid who still has the vendetta, but he's also very built and he can withstand a lot of pain. In the fourth chapter, the final chapter, as they call it, they kill Jason Voorhees. And it's the sickest fucking death, guys. <laughs> So Jason was dead. All's, all's well ends well. It was a good little journey. But then Paramount Pictures, they wanted to make another movie. I want to say, I guess chapter two is whenever Frank Mancuso Jr. really came into the picture, right? Frank Mancuso Sr. kind of handed it off to him because Paramount loved making these movies because they made 
just obscene amounts of money, but they did not like dirtying their hands with this franchise. They were cashing checks, but they weren't proud. I mean, as much as Sean Cunningham and Victor Miller and Steve Miner are important to the genesis of Friday the 13th, Frank Mancuso Jr., you could give credit to the longevity of this franchise. He was the one that kept championing it and kept wanting to make more movies. And so we wouldn't have the movie we're talking about now without Frank Mancuso Jr. He has that great producer mind. He understands what the bottom line is. He tries to capitalize on every penny that he has to spend on these projects. And I think that's where a lot of the life on the latter half comes from in this franchise. And so on number five, they try to do a little trickaroo with the audience, trying to make you think that the Jason's back, but not really, it's very ambiguous. But then we get to our film tonight where there's no ambiguity. It is literally Jason is back in town. This is where the supernatural lore of Jason really kicks into gear. So this is the brainchild of a man named Tom McLaughlin, who never really did a whole lot of feature film stuff. Although he did direct a Stephen King film, uh, he directed a movie called Sometimes They Come Back, which is a great ghost story. This used to be a nice little town, but for Jim Norman, it holds a terrifying secret. Now, 27 years later, he's come back with his family, but they won't be alone. Live and in person, Mr. Norman. His career after Jason comprises mostly of TV films. And in watching this film, you kind of get that kind of vibe as well. The pace, they kind of keep it going. I just think it's the most balanced. I mean, it's very Dream Warriors, you know, where, yeah, you do like the dark and the gritty originals, but there's a balance with these guys, their characters. You know, Jason doesn't say anything, but I think this is him saying the most he can uh, with his kills and his creativity and... The amount of kills, I mean, I've said it many times, it's hitting on all cylinders, man. Jason is at maximum power. Wait a second. What was that? What? Nothing. I could swear I heard something. I'm hungry. Oh, God. Be quiet. When you look at Jason Goes to Hell, it's kind of the same way, man. It takes a rocket launcher to blow him up in the beginning. In the, in the first five movies, there's a lot of suspension of disbelief. Yeah. But, like, with number six, man, all bets are off. And it's fun. There's a paintball scene in it. I mean, come on. It's the perfect balance of a thriller where there are some scary-ass scenes. I mean, there's a lot of – we're going to talk about this one, but uh, I just think it's the most fun. He purposely chose a lot of those classic universal monster themes for this film. Like, come on. I mean, the first scene in itself, and that's straight out of Frankenstein. That is just Frankenstein's monster coming to life. I mean, those themes are there, and they're and they're they're really thick. And and maybe that's one of the things that turns me off about it is that it is really just kind of swinging for the fences as far as fan service. For God's sakes, I mean, there's a there's a James Bond nod for the opening title. Beautiful. I mean. <laughs> so awesome i mean you've got to put yourself in like 12 or 13 year old shoes what do you think matthew i mean you said it's your favorite too i agree with everything you said it's the most balanced it is fun really important thing about it that i think people forget because it is the first one to really have intentional comedy in it yeah it has comedy in it but it never makes fun of jason it never portrays jason as anything other than what he is 
Whereas something like Freddy's Dead, because Freddy ends up being a more comedic character over time, Freddy is also part of the joke, but Jason isn't. You're going to be sorry you didn't listen to me. You're going to be sorry if you don't shut up. And I think that's what keeps it from becoming a farce. There's some kills that are just vicious and mean enough to remind you, oh, Jason's not a clown. The caretaker gets killed. I mean, that's brutal. It's something the other movies, they have one or they have the other, but they don't do it as evenly as this one. And yeah, suspension of disbelief, you've got you've to kind of let it go. He's, he's a zombie now. And he's also right. somehow gotten bigger since the last movie. <laughs> he was hitting the gym inside the grave, apparently. There's a fun fact about that little part you said. I didn't know this until I looked up some IMDb stuff, but... The first scene they shot was the paintball scene. And it was this crew member named Dan Bradley who was big. He was he was more thick. You yeah. can see if you and I had to watch it. I obviously knew that beforehand and I paid attention and I could actually tell. I mean, that scene he's more beefy, you know, like and not in a muscular way. He's just thick, you know, it's kind of almost a little chubby almost. Shirt looks a little small on him. There's something off. And they changed it right then. They, t- they took the guy out, and that's the only scene you'll see that guy as Jason. So That's not taking into consideration the fact that um, you had two guys in two as well. You know, the first person to ever play adult Jason is technically a woman. When you see his feet in the beginning of part two, the only person they could get to do at that point was uh, one of the female crew members. So <laughs> Hey, put these murder boots on. we got to do a scene. Walking. I did not know that. I love that shot in number two. Six is the last one before Hotter takes over. Hotter's got, it's the breathing thing that he brought in. That lurking, when he's stalking somebody, you can see him breathe and see his body move. And he's just so physical and giant, of course. I mean, he's uh, seething too. Exactly. Always angry. Yeah. I feel like Hotter, every time he was about to go on camera, just like slapped himself in the face and got real pumped. And it shows, it really does. But this is the last one before Hotter. To me, that's the only bad thing I can say about this is it's not a Kane Hotter one. If it was, it would have been even better. Jay Graham does a good job. I mean, he's really impressive. I think that that shot of him standing on top of the burning RV, that's money. That's so money. But uh, yeah, let's go ahead and get into the narrative, guys. You know, opening scene, you got uh, Tommy Jarvis, who's played by uh, one of the leads from Return of the Living Dead. Tom Matthews. Um, and then also Rorschach from Welcome Back, Cotter. We have to talk about Tom Matthews because he is a huge part of this film. He's great as Freddy in Return of the Living Dead. I thought his acting in that's great. I just watched that three days ago. I can finally see one thing. One thing only that can leave this world with suffering. What, Freddy? What? Live. And then he turns around and he's really good in this as Tommy Jarvis, man. Uh, he's kind of the main focal point. I mean, of course, the sheriff's a dumbass, but I love Tom Matthews in this role. And I wish he would have played one more. I think he could have played it out, but he decided to, to back out of this whole series for personal reasons. Uh, so he was in Return of the Living Dead 1. He does this. Mm-hmm. And then there's a quote from him where he says, I will never do another horror movie. And then he's- he did Return of the Living Dead 2. I think he was afraid of getting typecast back then. Mm-hmm. But he came back um, as Tommy for the game. So you got Tommy, you got Horace. They're both driving to Jason's graveside because Tommy has just got this huge heart on for just making sure that Jason's dead. All you need to know is Jason's dead, right? <laughs> Seeing his corpse ain't gonna stop the hallucinations. Seeing it won't, but destroying it will. Jason belongs in hell. I'm gonna see he gets there. 
And so they go to the gravesite. Horace tries to talk him off the ledge, but Tommy's just like, no, I have to see him. I have to see the body. And so he digs up a grave, which is one of my favorite movie tropes, which is it takes literally 10 seconds to dig up a grave, when in reality it would take several, several hours. I mean, especially the digging around the grave. That's intricate digging, I'm just saying. They get the casket open. You got Jason's rotting corpse inside there. Tommy loses his shit. He takes a, a fence post off one of those old metal fences you see in cemeteries, and he just starts just jabbing this thing into Jason's chest. But at the same time, a lightning storm is happening. Lightning just hits on this beam while it's inside of Jason. And that's the lifeblood that Jason needs to resurrect himself. And he does just that. And on top of that, he's not a bag of bones. He's got muscle tone. So much so, he takes his hand and he punches it through Horace's chest with his heart and his hands after he leaves his body through his back. That's why I love this intro. The intro, it, this movie's pace is, is top-notch, straight from the get-go. It's them in the truck. They're, they're like hauling ass towards the cemetery. There's no backstory. There's no build-up. It's just, it's straight into it, man. And then, like you said, his first kill, he comes out of the grave and just punches the guy's heart out. It's fucking awesome. I think he looks surprised that his fists went all the way through. <laughs> he, did, he didn't realize that he's, you know, he has superpowers now. That's kind of the comedic part of it is he goes throughout the film and that much stronger now and they show a couple of scenes like that then we get our famous uh james bond nod we get the title logo one of the things that i noticed in this film that is the last time you see it is the way the opening credits are rolled out which uh in the first six movies it was kind of they showed the names on a black screen with white text and it was always in diagonal corners you know, they show a name and they they would they would take it away and then show another name in the bottom corner. Just go back and forth with it. You didn't see that in number seven. They kind of did away with that. And so that's the last instance of that. For other Jason fans, I know that's kind of a, a thing that people notice. It became so much more basic, too, in seven. The font is worse. It's like they somehow figured out how they could spend less money on the incredibly cheap title sequence they already had. <laughs> It's a black screen with white letters. I mean, come on, guys. Like, you know, it's, no, we can, we can make it cheaper. If those movies came out now, it would just say, for credits, go to www. What the fuck is the internet? Yeah, the sheriff's office and then Tommy just bursts in, you know, saying, you know, we're all going to die. If, uh, somebody listen to me. Uh, it's it's kind of the same situation as Dream Warriors, where he's, he's shouting and nobody's listening to him. The sheriff already knows that Jason did exist at one point. Ultimately, they lock up Tommy in jail, you know, just for being so fucking crazy and, and just spout all of this crazy shit. But then we get to our next kill in the movie, which is a pair of counselors that are in this little VW bug. It's always a fucking VW bug in the mud, isn't it, guys? There's no way that we can do this. If the car drops into that gully, we'll never get it out. Do you have a better suggestion? Yeah. We're going to scare him. We're going to scare him. That's right. Drive towards him, he'll move. Nobody wants to die. Well, that's a freaking fact, least of all us. Will you just drive? Why can't they have a 4x4 pickup? They would get out of that jam very easily. 
this scene is the first out of the movie, which they do a couple times or three times. They break that fourth wall. Jason stops in front of the car and the girl that's in the driver's seat's like, you know, if, if, if I've ever seen a horror movie before, a guy in a, you know, a hockey mask is, you know, isn't a nice guy or something like that. They tongue in cheek it a few times in the film and that's a little nod. It gets a little worse at the end with the, the caretaking cemetery. But I think you mean awesome. <laughs> but to the average fan, they're like, oh man, this is so cheesy. I love it. I think it's great. That, that scene actually is, is to me pretty realistic. The characters act in a realistic way. Like it's the asshole from Ghost that nobody likes. He comes out with his little pea shooter uh, out of the glove compartment. I mean, good lord. This is a big trope for me in movies that drive me crazy. It is the mousiest of mouse guns that you're going to ever find. Pulled that out. I was like, dude, that's practically a BB gun. You can't even get a flesh wound going with that thing. But I, I did love the flex that Jason did where he just took the fence post and just went through the fender yeah. of the car and, and flattened the tire. I was like, man, Jason ain't fucking around. If you weren't scared before, you're definitely scared now. He shoots that thing through the windshield, kills the guy. Uh, the woman's on the run. She ends up in a little puddle next to the car. Jason catches up with her. She tries to give him money, you know, like she's so terrified that she thinks he's literally going to rob her. You know, she's trying to grab her billfold and she puts money out and then he disappears. She's in that little puddle and then he just slams his feet next to her head and just jabs that fence post into her skull. Remember the American Express card? I'm like, was American Express just like so cool in the 80s? Like, it's not actually American Express. It does say something else. That it, what it's is American it? Excess. Ah, see, it's about the money. That actress nearly died making that scene. When the fence post goes through the windshield, that was an actual thing that went through the windshield. You know, I could have swore it kind of veered towards the passenger side. I saw that, too. You can't have exact control over something when it's doing that. He said he had to just jerk it at the last moment to get it from not hitting her. Of course, this is the 80s. They used a real thing. And that's the yeah. director's wife. Man. No shit. Yeah. It's Nancy McLaughlin. That's fun. Fun fact. I love I love fun facts. I knew he would know all this stuff. <laughs> but then after that, we get introduced to the, the camp counselors, the, you know, the camp counselors that come in to help for the summer for this new town that's no longer called Crystal Lake. It's called Forest Green. It's confusing in the film because there's a lot of Forest Green County signage everywhere. So I'm not sure if the town is Forest Green or the county is Forest Green or if it's both. I think that it's both. I think they are also not consistent with it. So it's it's a band of these four kids, three females, one male, and one of them happens to be the daughter of the sheriff, uh, who I thought was a little baddie, by the way. Shorty a little baddie. She my little bull thing. And Shorty got the fatty. Shorty be catching more swings. And she just fell in love with Tommy. Like the yeah. second she saw this dude. And, and you could kind of see it with Tommy, too. Tommy was kind of like... I think I might be able to smash with this chick, you know? Besides the fact that there's a killer on the loose and the killer's targeting him, there's a little piece of him that's like, hey, kind of shooting some game at her, you know? So it establishes that. It establishes her attraction to Tommy. But my favorite of the four is that guy, Court. Love, <laughs> I love the story he tells about the Native American rock pile. I thought he held that thing, and I couldn't wait to see him again in the movie. Listen, you obviously don't know anything about Indians, okay? Probably none of you do. Look, here's a story. These are called Indian markers, okay? Let's just say you have a chief, right? And he dumps his squaw or his wife or whatever, and he decides, hey, I'm gonna pick up with another one, I'm gonna take off with her. So he takes off, leaving his son with the mother, and all of a sudden, you know, a week or two later, the son wants to catch up with his dad, right? He wants to learn how to shoot a bow, stuff, you know, kill buffalo, whatever these guys do. So what happens is he comes along, sees the rock, says, Dad, hey, he went that way, obviously. 
And so what happens is he comes up, knocks them all down before the mother catches up because she doesn't, he doesn't want to see any of her anymore. So, um, you know, pretty much that's the basic story. It tells you where they go. If this is as exciting as it gets, we're in big trouble, dude. Yeah, I always love goofballs, and Court's definitely the goofball of the movie. He's also the only nudity we get in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> only Court nipples in this one. That's another reason why I like Five. I mean, Deborah Voorhees in that one. My God. That was the very That's first the... scene they shot in that film. Was the nude scene? The extended sex scene in the woods with Deborah Sue Voorhees, because that was the thing Danny Steinman, the director, cared the most yeah. about. <laughs> well, didn't didn't Steinman work in, like, softcore porn before oh, he yeah. got the gig for Friday Five? Oh, not softcore. <laughs> oh. Oh. Hardcore. Gotcha. So he was he was all about it, about it, about it, about yeah. it, about it. So then I, I guess the next scene would be the paintball scene. Like You get a few more characters coming in. You find out that they're kind of corporate people who are on this retreat, and it's like a team-building exercise, this capture-the-flag paintball game that they're playing. We nail Roy, that's it. Victory is ours. It's taking forever. Starving. You know, that's your trouble, Larry. That's why your sales are always behind quota. Your instinct to eat is stronger than your instinct to win. You're a real ass, you know that? Better than being all ass. That is so unfair. Oh, here we go with unfair again. Let's do war, it's not fair. Give me a break, would you please? This is not war, this is a game. A lot of funny scenes come out of these few moments. And if not funny, at the very least, just lighthearted. It, it kind of takes the tension away for a second. But then, just like Jason, he, he comes in hard. He just lays waste to these paintballers. I mean, wasn't it a triple decapitation? I mean, has that happened on film before? I don't know about that. Hard to say. I know uh, that movie, The Collection, had like 10 people getting decapitated once, but... Man, I only watched that movie once, and I hated it. <laughs> but it has a, a 10-person decapitation? That scene at the beginning when they're in the nightclub, and it has like the, the, the blades start coming out of the walls for some reason. Looks like, like 10 people get killed at once, but... The wire at Ghost Ship, remember? Good point, good point. Sick scene. The only good scene in that film, in my opinion. Along with the paintballer's deaths, Jason's able to pick up a few more pieces for his outfit. A hunting knife, kind of like a Rambo knife almost. Uh, he also acquires a machete. Now Jason doesn't just have a fence post anymore. Now he's got a machete and a knife. So Jason has some ammo now. I mean, besides the whole undead zombie thing, he's also got some tools with him. So Are you guys pro or anti the bloody smiley face kill? The I don't like it. I don't like it at all, really. Love it. I think it's hilarious. I love it too. I think the the scene with him holding yeah. the machete with the arm still attached is more funny than it is. I think it's the only point in the movie where it teeters really close to being too much. I can totally see why you don't like it. Just far enough, I still I still enjoy it. But it's unnecessary and it doesn't help the story at all. It's literally just like an inside joke almost for the filmmakers. That was my takeaway from the whole bit. Then in that same day, the cemetery caretaker he realizes that somebody dug up Jason's body in order to not get in trouble for it or lose reputation for the cemetery. He covers up the grave with Horace inside the grave from the first scene so he doesn't get blamed. Tommy tries to go back to find the graveside to see all the dirt's been put back. But then it gets nighttime again. Caretaker ends up getting hit later on that night. And what's cool is the caretaker was actually originally supposed to survive the movie. This was another reshoot death. He's walking along in the woods out from the cemetery. I love the setup they have for it. He says, Lucille, you're going to be the death of me. He throws the bottle behind his back and he doesn't hear the crash. He turns around and Jason just breaks the bottle and yoinks it into his throat. What a way to go, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
you only see it for a split second, but you see blood coming out of the neck of the bottle. It was supposed to be more, but they they cut it down to just that. Well, but isn't that kind of the theme with uh, with all these movies? Really, is the MPAA just really went to town? I believe Joe Bob Briggs made a special highlighting what you could have seen, but you're not seeing the eight movie collections. There's a couple of scenes that make the DVD extras, but they never made the final film. I think there should be so much more. But yeah, you're right. It's just such a quick cut. But you see that through this entire movie, especially with the next kill, the picnic couple. And they get on their Vespa, takes yeah, a machete, right. and just runs through both of them with one swift move. And you see them both die, and you see blood kind of spatter. But that's another one where I feel like they probably had a way better shot of that kill, but they just couldn't use it. There are still movies that got released to theaters in the 80s that were still gorier than these movies, darker than these movies, and they never had a problem. But these movies, they just had a really nasty disposition towards these movies, and they just did not want them to exist. I was going to call that clinic and have them collect your ass, but I don't want you around here any longer poisoning my daughter or anyone else with your warped sense of humor. They have to be warned, Sheriff. The Seven is even worse. They butchered Seven. Like, it's barely recognizable by the time you get to it. Yeah, Seven was gutted so bad. So then we get to the camp where the kids have arrived. Uh, It's nighttime already, and then one of the kids starts screaming. She says there's a monster that came into her room. And what's funny is that right before that scene, they literally play a game, a card game, all about the legend of Jason. Each card pile represents a cabin, you know? And it kind of reminded me of the NES game. I haven't played the game in three decades, so I can't verify that. And then this girl, the girl that keeps seeing Jason, like she becomes a bigger part of this film later on. And we cut to my man, Court. My favorite scene of this movie is definitely the RV scene. And my favorite kill. I love when he shoves Nikki's face into the metal and it warps around her face. I think that's the coolest kill of the film. It's got like, what is it? Uh, teenage Frankenstein is playing in the background. I'm the kid on the block with my head made of rock. Great, great 80s music. Uh, Court's the oblivious boyfriend while his girlfriend's getting killed. You know, he's singing along, he's driving the RV, and then, you know, you get to see the Rambo knife to the head with Court. And then I love that they wrecked the RV. That was the last uh, thing they shot. Sure, that was a high budget thing. I mean, it looks great. That great shot of him standing on top of the RV while the RV's burning. This looks like an absolute boss. RV zero, Jason Moore. <laughs> The actress plays Nikki. She was supposed to be in part five, but um, Danny Steinman allegedly, I mean, oh, Danny Steinman's passed away, but still allegedly told her at the interview, like, show me her boobs. Boobs, booby, boob, 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 boobs. <laughs> and she said no. She wanted to talk to her lawyer before she, you know, signed on to do nudity. And then she came back the next day. They're like, oh, yeah, we don't we don't need your services anymore. <laughs> Oh, wow. Like 1980s, man, you could get away with so much. Of course, you see that stuff come back to roost now, but it's part of the reason I have five is like my least favorite movie is it's kind of sleazy and kind of an unfun way. Find out stuff like that. It feels like. And so uh, let's see that that was all from from those. You know, um, I'm having a hard time, Charlie, right now. Are you having a hard time, Matt, hearing him? Yeah, he's, he's you're starting to break up. 
uh, one, of, one of the things that I also liked was the inclusion of Alice Cooper, especially with real music that Alice Cooper provided for this film. I feel like your connection is just not – I can hear you, but it's very spotty, man. It's cutting out. I mean, it's it's like every fourth word. Damn. Okay, we well, want to hang up and we can uh, – I'll just call back. We'll try that. Okay, I, I'm going to go ahead and hang up. All right. Baba Booey. Look, you've got me where you want me. There's no reason. If I had you where I wanted you, they'd be pumping your ass full of formaldehyde. Why don't you at least call the camp and make sure everything's all right? We have. Trying to track you down. The phone there's disconnected. Well, doesn't that tell you something? Yeah, they should have paid their bill. Sheriff. Now you just sit tight, Jason. As soon as the authorities from Carpenter get here. Sheriff, you better take this. How's it going over there, guys? Can y'all hear me? I can hear you. Okay, good. There we go. All right, so, yeah, I so appreciate you morning. guys. Surprise, surprise. The Friday the 13th episode is having issues. The final showdown here. I wanted to get the prison kiss, and I thought that was pretty hokey. Guys in jail, the love interest is trying to get him out. They do some kind of gimmick to get him out. But in this particular gimmick, it was to try and get the girl closer to Tommy. Tommy makes this move that he's been trying to make the entire movie. There's a great bit in that in that escape where Megan pulls the revolver on Deputy Pappas. A laser. <laughs> he's got that laser from, from the first Terminator. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now see what you've done. You made my deputy draw his revolver. He's been dying to try out his mail-order laser scope. Wherever the red dot goes, you bang. It looks dumb, but that's basically what they looked like back then. It's almost as big as the gun itself. It sounded like it had a cooling system, like, inside of it. It was, like, whirring up, like it had to warm it up for it to start going. So Megan and Tommy, they end up escaping uh, the prison. And then it's basically just down to those three. You got Jason, you got Tommy, and you got Megan left. The two deputies get dispatched. One of them gets darted. Do you guys remember the deputy that has the big uh, puffy coat with the fur checking his hair in the mirror? Mm-hmm. That actor, uh, I can't remember his name, but I looked at his filmography. One of the last movies he did in, in 2017 was called Scared Topless. <laughs> Old Mill Entertainment presents a Dave Zanny production. Directed by Harold Blueberry. A group of unsuspecting college students explore a haunted house and get more than they bargained for when the sexual frenzy of the paranormal world reveals itself in... Scary topless. Sexy wives syndrome and pleasure spa. And I'm like, oh my God. And then I look at his most recent, the last thing he did, 2020, right? It's this TV show for Christian Netflix called Haddison Family Vacation or something. So he went full spectrum over this career, man. He must have had a couple of dark days in his in his topless time. So I just thought that was wild. It's like from Friday to like Cinemax late night and Jesus movie. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's one of the things I like about this movie is these characters that are in the movie, like they're not incredibly distinct. But we can always point them out just by their their tiny mannerism that they are given as a character, you know. So he's looking and he's looking in the mirror in the, in the window, checking his hair. Holler if you see anything. Like what? Anything that don't belong. 
Don't wake the kids. Come on, handsome. And Tommy's plan is to basically do what he did, which was drown Jason by attaching a chain to a boulder and then throwing that boulder into the water with Jason attached to it. There is, you know, a, a big scuffle between Jason and Tommy and Megan, but eventually they make it to the water and their plan is implemented. And it's just this great shot of Jason sinking. I mean, of course, Tommy and Megan have an underwater scuffle as well. There's a little bit of tension there, but then it's just Jason just floating right below the water, which is such a great metaphor for the whole series. Just, he's always there. great it was a great little ending to this movie we got to rate this thing i have no fucking clue going on with my shit today that's crazy um i would love to know matt i know you said it's your favorite but what exactly would you give it on a scale from one to ten like i did for the fist the north star movie i'm gonna give it two separate ones first one as just as a film on its own i think this is a legitimately solid movie especially in consideration for what the friday the 13th movies kind of are a lot of times good strong seven is a regular movie it's got better cinematography than most of these movies end up having it's got an art style that it's going for there's a lot of deliberateness to themes they don't always work necessarily but the director had a vision for this and he executed that vision and that's something a lot of the other movies can't really say that they do As a Friday movie, though, I think it's the total package. It's Lex Luger, baby. It's as professional of a Friday as you're going to get. Like Ryland was saying, it's going on all cylinders. It's really even. It doesn't have the peaks and valleys that a lot of the other movies do. I think it's really solid. I'm right there with Matt. If you're just looking at it as a casual fan, you're not really a fan of horror or slashers. It's like a seven movie but in the canon of Jason, I was going to say a nine too. It gets a nine because it's so well balanced. The kills are awesome. The fast pacedness of it, it gets in there early and doesn't let up. And I love that. It's a little bit campy and fun at times, which kind of cuts the intensity a little bit, which I love about a slasher or a Jason movie. They need to have some comedy in them. In that canon, it's a nine. Nine all day. Yeah! You lose in, in those films because expecting the audience to know what's going on. It's only meant for one thing, like as far as its timelessness on the whole, because it's leaning into that fanciness. For that reason, um, it's not it's not my favorite. But if I would rate this movie the same same way you guys did, I'd probably give it six point seven, probably the same as Dream Warriors. As a movie, it's just a moneymaker. But in the Jason canon, I would give it a nine as well. I had a great time just talking some Jason. This was a blast. Tech issues aside, you know, you guys brought up a lot of great points. I think everybody had some trivia to add, so that's always good. Like I said about Fist of North Star, I could talk about these movies all the time. So any chance I get, I'm more than happy to take the time. Yeah, am I still sounding okay? No. No, not really, but... Damn, man, that's ridiculous. Charlie Thompson and Ryland Johnson. Of course, Matthew Smith has our guest. Uh, we've been spitting the real shit, and we'll catch you next time. Peace out. Stay safe, everybody. Girls, 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 girls are so polite. They don't crush everything they see. You could take them to a funky, funky forest with big glass spider webs hanging from the ceiling. They wouldn't feel the uncontrollable urge to tip and push and kick and rip and tear.
I gotta poke it to know it, I gotta light it on fire and poke and destroy, poke and destroy. 